Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again we pause to remember that your Spirit is pleased when your Son is exalted in the power of the Spirit and through your Word. We know that when you, when your Word is open, when the Bible is opened, your Word, you speak. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see wonderful things from your Word. We continue to pray for everything that's going on in our country and in our world. Father, we pray for our political leaders, Lord, local, state, and countrywide. We pray that you would continue to give them wisdom. Pray that you would continue to, Lord, open their eyes to see the reality of what's going on in our country and that they would put the needs of the citizens of this country before their own. Father, we pray that your gospel, the good news of your son, would be proclaimed and advanced. We pray for your true church, those who trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are followers of Christ, that as a church, as churches, as a church at large, we would be people who would be concerned about Jesus being made much of in this country and all over this world. We pray this morning for preachers and pastors, not only this morning, but yesterday and tomorrow, Father, who will be proclaiming your word, who will be preaching Christ and him crucified, that, Lord, you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would help us to preach with precision, with passion, and with power. Help your people to be edified and built up and encouraged through your word. I pray that people would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, that there would be many who would repent of their sins today and put their trust in the one hope for humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, Father, open our eyes so that we might see great truths from your word and that we might not only grow in knowledge of your son and his ways and what it means to follow him, but that we would meditate upon your word and apply it deliberately to our lives in the power of the Spirit and by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And the title of this message is The Requirement for Entrance into the Kingdom. The requirement for entrance into the kingdom, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, is our passage for this morning. And I want to read this passage as we begin. Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And said to them, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God. The Lord Jesus and his disciples, as you know, and if you remember are on their final journey traveling south through the region known as Judea. And they're headed to Jerusalem for the events of Passion Week. Christ is headed with his disciples. And in a few months from the time of this passage, the Lord Jesus will die on the cross and pay for sins. That's recorded for us, those events of Passion Week, in chapters 11 through 16 of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at those chapters in the months ahead. And in many ways, our text this morning that I just read is is a contrast to the previous passage, to chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, 
where we saw the, the pride of the religious leaders, the pride of the Pharisees manifested. And their pride was shown in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and that these self-righteous Pharisees think that they know better than our Lord on the critical issue of marriage and divorce. And of course, as we saw, um, they were simply trying to justify their idea or their practice of free divorce during that day. But their, their pride is shown in our previous passage. And now, in our passage this morning, in verses 13 through 16, we really see the stark contrast to the pride of the Pharisees. As our Lord Jesus teaches his disciples on the issue of children and what children can teach us about the kingdom of God. So we see the contrast here. And we have the opportunity this morning, if you will, to go to the Lord's school of children. To learn about the importance of children and what we can learn from them. And we learn, more than anything else here, that Jesus values children. That Jesus considers children to be important. And that is a far cry from the culture that we live in today, isn't it? This reality that children are important. Just consider for a minute that in the U.S., the Guttmacher Institute estimates that in 2017, in 2017, just listen to these stats, approximately 862,000 children were aborted and murdered in 2017. 862,000 approximately in 2017, at least those who were recorded. Just in California alone, in 2017, an estimated 132,680 abortions took place. Just let that sink in. Just in California, 132,680 aborted babies. I mean, just in California alone, in 2017, approximately a quarter of the murdered babies were attributed to the state of California. Happened here in our own state. And just to put it in perspective, the 862,000 aborted babies in 2017 were more U.S. lives than World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraqi War, Afghanistan, 9-11 that we just commemorated, and COVID combined. More deaths, aborted babies in 2017, 862,000, than all of those wars and events combined. Staggering. It's amazing. On this issue of abortion, a few years ago, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul wrote this, quote, The most dangerous place for a human being in America is the womb of a woman, end quote. Wow. The most dangerous place for a human being in America is the womb of a woman. He was speaking specifically with regards to this issue, this atrocious sin of murdering babies by way of abortion. And this is why I appreciate and I love this particular passage that we're going to be looking at this morning when we think about some of those statistics and other things that we're going to mention. Because here we learn that Jesus honors children. And there are lessons to be learned with regards to children. 
Here we learn in the previous passage, let me put it this way, the Lord Jesus honors women, in particular wives, by teaching God's view on marriage and divorce. And in this passage here now, he honors children as he teaches us on the issue of the kingdom of God. If in the previous passage, the Lord corrects the sinful and twisted mentality of the religious Pharisees, in this passage, he commends children as those, as those who characterize individuals who can enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus treats all people with dignity. He did so throughout his whole life. And to the culture of his day, in the previous passage, he essentially says, stop using women, your wives, like objects to exploit, like possessions to be had, to discard whenever you feel like it. Honor women, honor marriage that is monogamous, that is a union, that is permanent, that is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, according to God's design. That is the message that Jesus had in the previous text. But now we learn about children. And in so doing, as he teaches us on children, our Lord Jesus takes us to his school of children, if you will. And he shows us here, if you're taking notes, two ways that we can display the gospel to a lost and dying world as he interacts with, this, with, with children. Two ways that we can display the gospel to a lost and dying world as our Lord Jesus engages and interacts with children here in this text. It's a beautiful text. You see, for Jesus, everything, everything always pointed to a greater, a bigger picture. And that big picture was his kingdom. And so here again, we have children serving as an illustration on how to live as citizens of the kingdom now, brothers and sisters. We have much to learn from what he says here about how we should not only anticipate this future kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in, but how we might live now as citizens of that kingdom in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So first of all, the first way that we display the gospel to a lost and dying world, according to this passage, is this way. We display the gospel by walking in Christ-like love. We display the gospel by walking in Christ-like love. Love. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. That little word and at the beginning of verse 13 indicates a connection to the previous passage. It's while Jesus is still in the house in verse 10 discussing with his disciples their questions on clarifying this issue of marriage and divorce. Whoever's house this was, it was still in the house that then parents specifically began bringing children to him so that he might touch them. It was common, according to Jewish custom, for Jewish rabbis to bless children like this. This was a common practice by laying their hands on them and blessing them. And it was a way to extend favor upon those little ones. Throughout the Old Testament, God taught his people that children were to be valued. For example, we have passages like Psalm 127 and verse 3 that speak about children being a gift of the Lord. That children are a, a reward from God. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. The Israelites understood that God wanted his people to honor children, not idolize them, not worship them, but, idolize, but, but uh, honor them as gifts from him. And so that was the mentality. Now think about this. 
This was in direct contrast to this valuing of children. This was in direct contrast to the Greco-Roman world of the day, which tended to devalue children. And even in some cases, putting children to death if the father chose to do so. There was this thing called in Roman Roman times, there's something called the, the power of the father which basically gave the father full rights over his children, even to the point of inflicting capital punishment upon his own children. And so, the general mentality toward children in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day was that children were essentially property. Something like second-class citizens. They were unimportant, largely marginalized. They were largely ignored and neglected, exploited and used for personal benefit of people. This was the mentality. And again, as I said earlier, I think there's a direct parallel to this in our culture, isn't there? If in Greco-Roman times, the practice of infanticide was common, we do the same today by putting thousands of unborn babies to death through the sin of abortion, which is the murdering of a little life. We do the same thing today, exploiting children, sexualizing them. I'm sure you've heard already of the recent film that came out this week from Netflix, the wretched and evil film called Cuties, basically highlighting and featuring 11-year-old little girls dancing provocatively in all manner of of wicked behavior. This is our, our culture This is a hideous example of our culture sexualizing children, exploiting children. And how demented and twisted and perverse is our culture? That what is the defense for something like this? That, hey, children need to be proud of their sexuality. And this is a way to stop making that issue a taboo topic. Children need to be brought out. And they need to be proud of who they are. That's one way to twist God's design for children, isn't it? You know what we're seeing, brothers and sisters? We're seeing Romans 1 ever before us right now. The wrath of God is being revealed and manifested in that God has given people over to a depraved mind, a twisted mind. And now we are spurring people on already in their depravity, already in their sinful desires towards child pornography and those kinds of things by now putting things out like this. This is the manifestation of God's wrath against a people who have suppressed God in unrighteousness. Who pretend that there is no God and that he doesn't speak to the issues of today. So this is very much even the culture of Christ during his day. It's in that context that we need to understand something of this passage. Now listen, some people may not murder their babies. We understand that. And... Some people may not even agree with films such as Cuties and things of that sort. But, perhaps more subtly, there are people who consider children not a blessing but a burden. They consider having children not something to joyfully anticipate, but a hindrance to their personal goals and their personal careers. This, too, is a sinful attitude to have, a sinful mentality for us that we need to repent of if we have that. Or we tend to view children as, a, as an obstacle rather than an opportunity to raise them so that they might be kingdom citizens and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, as we look at this account, inevitably, in its more subtle form, this type of mentality, mentality has creeped into the, the minds of the disciples of Jesus' followers. As seen in their reaction, if you notice in verse 13, to parents who are bringing their children to Jesus. Look at verse 13. It says that the disciples, in response to this, rebuked them. They rebuked these parents specifically. You can just picture this. Who knows how many parents and children coming in droves outside of this house just to have the great rabbi lay his hands on these children and pronounce favor and blessing upon these kids. Putting together this account and the parallel account of Luke 18.15, which uses the word for babies, a different word than the word used here for children. These were most likely infants up to even perhaps the age of 12 years old or less. So you have an array of children here and parents bringing their kids so that they might be blessed by the great rabbi. Whatever the situation might be with the age of children, the disciples rebuke them. It means to reprove, to show strong disapproval of someone. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Just put yourself in the world of the disciples. If we give them the benefit of the doubt, we believe the best about Jesus' disciples, perhaps the disciples were protecting Jesus. Maybe they were just guarding his time. Hey, parents, the Lord's busy. He's tired. He's resting. He doesn't have time for this. Now you run along, and while you're at it, take your stroller with you, right? You can imagine and picture this. We can understand the disciples trying to be considerate of Jesus, trying to shield Jesus for more and more attention. He's already busy as it is. He's probably tired. They're heading to Jerusalem. They're trying to even grab, to, um, wrap their minds around this reality that he's going to die for sins. Jesus has been talking so much about that. But notice the response of our Lord in verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. This is a strong contrast to the reaction of the disciples towards these families. When, but when Jesus saw this, when Jesus saw the treatment of these families by the disciples, he was indignant. That's a strong emotional reaction kind of a word. This is a strong emotional reaction on the part of our Lord. Made up of two words, much and to grieve. Jesus was much grieved. He was very grieved with a tinge of righteous indignation and righteous anger. I'm always amazed, I don't know about you, at these statements that describe Jesus' emotions or reactions. You know why? Because we learn something of our precious Savior. We are reminded of of His real humanity, the real humanity of the Lord Jesus. That while on earth... The eternal Son of God, while never ceasing to be fully God during His humanity, He took upon Himself a real human nature. And as a real human being, He experienced an array of human emotions. Pain and sadness and anguish of heart and righteous anger and righteous indignation. Weariness and exhaustion and hunger. Sorrow. And here he, here he experiences a, a mixture of grief and mixed with righteous anger and justified displeasure at the indifference of his disciples towards these families and specifically toward children. The real humanity of Christ is shown here. Notice how this strong inner emotion then 
moves our Lord to command his disciples in verse 14. Permit the children to come to me, the Lord says. Do not hinder them. A double command. The sense is, allow them at once to come to me and stop hindering them. Strong imperatives. Strong commands by our Lord. They're not a hindrance to me. They're not a burden to me. You see, to to his culture and perhaps even to his disciples, to some extent or another, these children were a distraction, a hindrance, an obstacle to the plans of Jesus and to his disciples. But to Jesus, they were precisely, these children, the kind of people that he came to reach and minister to. He came to minister even to the little ones, even to children. You know, I love a church like every Bible church that has a heart for children. It's been so encouraging to, to click some of the video links that we've been getting as a church, in particular for our kids, the CBC Kids videos that, that many of you here in our body have been putting together. Some of you ladies and some of you men teaching little ones, putting these videos together just to invest into them something about the greatness of God and, and Christ and how we ought to imitate the example and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. We must never for a second, brothers and sisters, even as parents or as a church, neglect ministry to our children. I mean, consider for, for a minute that even Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world inhabiting a womb. He himself was a baby. Then he was born And grew as a child, ages 1 all the way to 12. And then became a young man at the age of 13. Even Jesus lived a full life himself. Children are important to God. But what our Lord also shows us here is that Christ was impartial to the least of these people in the world. That Christ was impartial, that he was no respecter of persons. In the sense that Jesus never categorized people into levels of importance. In fact, the marginalized, the insignificant, the often ignored of society, those people were the people that Jesus, if you study his life, went out after all the more and ministered to. Those that others ignored or neglected or considered unimportant from a human perspective. The unattractive, the unappealing. Those were the people that Jesus went after. There's something here for us, beloved, isn't there? When we look at the example of Christ and his ministry to people. See, for some of us, we are indifferent to certain people. We tend to put people in a box We tend to categorize people. We pick and choose who we'll love, who we'll serve, based upon certain prejudices that we might have. Not for Christ. He wasn't partial. He wasn't preferential. Christ made time for those who were the least of these, if you will. You see, for Jesus, people were his mission. People were his business. He came to reach people for himself. Learn and apply yourself to this about your Savior, brother, or sister in Christ. That we need to be people, people. That we need to be going after the marginalized, especially. The ignored in society. 
I mean, isn't this what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark from the life of our Lord Jesus? Our Lord Jesus was on mission to reach the outcasts, the neglected. Some examples, like the demon-possessed that people were afraid of and wouldn't even get near, understandably so. He went after those people. He went after paralytics who were considered by many or most a lost cause and hopeless individuals. He went after the paralytics of his day. He went after lepers who people avoided like the plague and didn't want to be around and didn't minister to them. He went after the sick, the burdened, the potentially infectious. He went after sinners and tax collectors who most who were self-righteous didn't even want to get near. They considered themselves to be better than, quote-unquote, sinners and tax collectors. Those are the people that Jesus went after to minister to. And he had compassion for them. Christ ministered to these people. You see, we're so wired as Christians living in America to run from people. And to run toward comfort and security and safety. We spend more time criticizing people, verbally hating people who are like us, condemning people who are sinners like us, were it not for Christ. We spend more time doing that than praying and sharing Christ with them and looking for opportunities to display the gospel of Jesus Christ through our good works for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Where's our love for Christ in how we love people? Those things are not separate things. Your love for Christ is shown directly toward him first and foremost in your devotion to Jesus. And it is also manifested in your, hor- in your vertical rela- horizontal relationships and how you love your brethren and you love the lost. They're not two separate things. One flows from the other. The more that you understand the love of Jesus for you on the cross, the more you will, under, you will flesh out then love for other people who are sinners just like you. But for those of us who are so critical right now and are showing very little love for people out in the world, that they are lost and hopeless, show me in the Gospels where you find Jesus more focused on condemning people than trying to reach them. Show me. Show me where you find in the Gospels Jesus more annoyed, more irritated, more sinfully angry with sinners and not longing for them to escape condemnation and hell. Show me. You won't find it, brothers and sisters. You won't find it. Jesus grieved at people's condition. Jesus was saddened and had compassion on people because they were like sheep having no shepherd. They were aimless, hopeless, directionless. Jesus had compassion on people like that. He wept when Lazarus died. Why? Not only because of Lazarus being physically dead, he was about to raise him from the dead. He wept because of the condition of people around him who were weeping at the brokenness of a fallen humanity. I wonder how many of us look at the, think about that when we look at the atrocities happening across our country and our world. We long for people to see Jesus, to be saved from their sins, from their hopeless condition. 
We understand their spiritual blindness and their plight, and we long and we pray, oh God, show them, open their eyes spiritually to their sin. Help them see the beautiful Savior that can rescue them from this, from condemnation before you first and foremost. And all of these things that are taking place, What's the matter with some of us? What's the matter with some of us? Just in the last few years, I grieve. Californians are fleeing this state in the thousands. And might I say some for understandable reasons. Some who have even left this body who had good reasons. But you know what? Others, not so much. Not so much. And what's especially sad to me are Christians who are flat out just scared. Call it what it is. So many so-called followers of Christ, so focused on your self-preservation, so focused on your personal safety, so focused on government allowing you to do what you want to do, and you're ready to flee California, go somewhere else where it's more comfortable and more safe for you and your family. Some of us have forgotten why we are here. I submit to you right now, this is the, uh, my own theory, that is, if there's a place closest to hell, it is California right now. That's where I want to be, to yank people right out of hell by the hair. We've forgotten about our mission. For some of us, our God is too small. He's too wimpy, our God with a little g, not the God of the Bible. He cannot rescue this humanity here in California through us, can he? Of course he can. The one true God of the Bible is about displaying the goodness of his son and Jesus coming into the world to die for sinners such as you and I, through us, through his church, who are here to display the gospel of Christ to a lost and wicked world in California. In Los Angeles, in Burbank, brothers or sister, brothers and sisters. I mean, just imagine if Christ would have would have had the same mentality that some of us have. Just imagine if if Jesus would have lost sight of his mission to proclaim himself and make followers and build his church. What if Jesus would have lost sight of his own mission? Imagine if Christ were only concerned about his personal safety and security. Imagine if Christ hadn't left his father's throne above to come down to our dump, our sin-cursed world, and to die for our sins. Where would we be today? We would be hell-bound. That's where we would be. On our way to hell. Under his wrath and condemnation. That's where we would be. But he did come, didn't he? He did come. He came because he loved and had compassion on sinful humanity, so much love he had that he came into our sin-cursed, fallen world, took upon our human weaknesses, died on the cross to pay for our sins, took upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath that we deserve for our sins, and rose from the dead three days later so that by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus, we have hope, eternal life, forgiveness, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the hope of a sure kingdom that we're going to be a part of where righteousness dwells and Jesus reigns. 
You see, the gospel, the good news of God reconciling sinners to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus is possible because Christ loved sinful human beings and laid aside his comforts as a willing sacrifice for sinners who only deserve hell and condemnation. What did he give us instead? Grace. Blessing. Kindness. Favor through his sacrifice. I want to ask you this morning, are you like Christ in the way that you are striving by His grace to love people? Listen, you and I don't get a free pass because things are hard right now. We don't get a free pass because things are difficult. And we can't point our finger back at God and say, well, Jesus' circumstances were a lot easier than today. Really? Really? Jesus loved people despite an oppressive, corrupt government. How would you like to have been under the dictatorial, wicked Roman emperor of Jesus' day? How do you like them apples? Seriously. How about in the region of Judea, under Herod Antipas, the immoral, adulterous, wicked governor, if you will, of that area, who killed Jesus' own second cousin, John the Baptist? How about that? Jesus, too, had to deal with injustices, in case you want to throw those in there. How about an an oppressive and, and partial Roman government? How about temple prostitutes and immorality rampant out in the city of Rome and other cities? How about an immoral culture? How about idolatry being rampant? And many, many idols being worshipped. How about ongoing infanticide? In many areas of the Roman government of the Roman Empire, we think we have it harder than Jesus. Jesus loved people amidst the most profound oppression, if you want to use that word. You want to you want to talk about oppression? Jesus experienced ongoing spiritual attacks by demons in the demonic realm. Jesus was constantly surrounded by poverty-stricken people who were demon-possessed. On top of that, homeless people, deadly pestilence and disease and sickness. Even his own countrymen were constantly biting his own hands. The people who should have known better, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees should have known better, and they themselves were constantly going after Jesus. They were his enemies instead of his friends. And in the midst of that, the list goes on and on and on. Jesus loved people. Even little ones. Even little ones like children. He had time for them. You know why? Because people were and are image bearers. And they're to be treated with dignity and respect and honor. Beloved, we don't get a pass for being indifferent right now toward our world. We don't get a pass for being non-empathetic towards those who are hurting. We don't get a pass for being unloving and hateful Christians in our hearts. Christians like our Lord Jesus display the gospel by walking in Christ-like love. 
And love, by the way, does not water down the truth. It does not withhold the truth. But love for God and others is our motivation both for speaking the truth and love shapes the way that we engage others with the truth. Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Those go hand in hand, don't they? The tension exists in our lives because of our sin. Christ was the perfect example of truth and love in one person. We strive by the power of the Spirit of God and the grace of God to show that toward other people, true and love. So as our Lord engages children, notice here, He shows us that we can display the gospel by walking in Christ-like love. Secondly, we display the gospel by walking in childlike humility. We display the gospel by walking in childlike humility. Please note how at the end of verse 14, the Lord Jesus gives the reason why He's displeased with the action of His disciples. Notice, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to children. On the one hand, we've seen the Lord's love for children. That was genuine towards those physical little beings who are there, who are image bearers. He had time for them. But there's a greater application for his disciples regarding the kingdom. In fact, he adds this explanation in verse 15, if you notice. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Here's the greater application. Here's the greater lesson, if you will. That children illustrate the kind of characteristics, the kinds of qualities that are possessed by citizens of the kingdom of God. What's typical of children? Especially when they're little. Children are trusting, aren't they? Children are dependent. They understand their helplessness. It's not that they're sinless, for they're, they're sinners just like anyone else, okay? Those of us who have little ones especially can attest to that. From the moment of conception, children are sinners by nature. But if there's something true about children, is that they understand their helplessness. They understand their neediness. They understand that they have needs, and they can't meet their own needs. They're dependent upon us. Please notice that in verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever, this makes the call universal, applying to anyone, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Notice what he says there, receive. Receive the kingdom like a child. He doesn't say earn. He doesn't say achieve the kingdom. He doesn't say work for the kingdom, but what? Receive. Receive. The kingdom is a gift to be received, not earned. It's a gift freely offered to people through Jesus Christ. We understand a free gift, don't we? Even with regards to our own kids, we see this during birthdays or, or Christmas season and, and little children. When you give your child on their birthday or for Christmas a gift, how do they respond? How do they respond? Toddler says, oh no, mom and dad. Mommy, daddy, or however, however they call you, papa, mama, don't, 
Don't give me that gift. Let me, let me pay you back for that gift. Is that what your little toddler does? Not my toddler's. Or mom and dad, I want you, I want to be responsible, even as a toddler. What do I have to do to earn that gift? What chores can I do? They don't ever, they don't ever ask that. What do they do? How do they respond? They simply accept the gift, right? They take the gift. They're grateful for it. They're joyful. They joyfully receive it from their mom or dad. They receive, accept that gift knowing that there are no conditions from their parents for receiving that gift. It's a gift. That's the nature of a gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. And this is precisely the Lord's point, isn't it? This is precisely Jesus' point, you see. It's the kind of childlike humility that God says is required, that's absolutely necessary for salvation from your sins. For entrance into the kingdom. It's not a work. It's something that God does in the heart of a person. But you must come with empty hands of faith to receive, to accept the free gift. Like a child. In childlike humility. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, literally happy. Happy are the spiritually bankrupt, is what he means. The word, they're poor, means, means those who are, who are economically disadvantaged. That's what it referred to. But there, Jesus, in Matthew 5, 3, he's talking about spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit, internally, to those who look at their spiritual bank account, if you will, and acknowledge that they have nothing to offer God by which they can gain favor and merit before God. Poor in spirit. No good works. No religion. No human achievement or performance can save them from their sins. No works, no religion, no human achievement, no personal merits, no performance can save any of us from our sins and make us right before God. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It is not by our works that we are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor from God. What does God require for those who desire to enter into the kingdom? He requires a childlike humility that comes to him, not as a worthy recipient, but as a blind beggar, a bankrupt individual who has nothing spiritually speaking to offer God whereby we can gain favor in his eyes. Like that wonderful hymn says, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. True, isn't it? We come to Christ as as blind, broken beggars in childlike humility. And in so doing, we gain everything, beloved, by grace. You remember in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, don't you? 
how two men, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector, enter into the temple. And there, the, the Pharisee was, was proud, self-justifying, exalting himself above others, including that tax collector he even called him out, who was this tax collector in the back of the room, looking down upon him, looking down upon others whom he deemed beneath him. They didn't understand his unworthiness. The tax collector was proud. I mean, the Pharisee was, was proud. And then on the other hand, you had this tax collector who with great brokenness was acknowledging, beating his breast as a symbol of his contriteness over his sin before God, beating his breast with a sense of unworthiness, like a beggar pleading for the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, article, definite article, the sinner, singling himself out as the sinner. Brokenness over his sin. And Jesus says there in Luke 18, verse 14, The one who exalted himself would be humbled, the Pharisee. But the one who acknowledged his sin, this tax collector and his need for mercy, that man went away justified. Justified. Not guilty over his sin. Why? He had a childlike humility and brokenness over his sin. This is what Jesus is talking about. A childlike humility in relation to our recognition of our sin against God and our sense of unworthiness before a holy and just creator and thus our need for his grace, for his unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness and blessing. That's what he's talking about. You remember how back in Mark chapter 2, in verse 14, do you remember how Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, came to know Christ, became a follower of Jesus. He gets saved and he throws this evangelistic event. Matthew, the tax collector, does in his own house. And he invites all of his unbelieving friends there. And the moralistic, self-righteous Pharisees and scribes are all there sitting in judgment of all the sinners and tax collectors, they say. And in Mark chapter 2 and verse 16, it says that when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Can you imagine even the way that they said that? I mean, they called them out, tax collectors and sinners, elevating themselves above them. And then in verse 17, they're hearing this. It says that Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What a slap in the face. What an incredible put down of these self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders. In other words, if you don't see that you're sick with a sin problem, I have nothing to say to you, but the person who acknowledges their sin problem, I can help them as the great divine physician. Oh, in the same way, if you're listening today, right now, The great physician can heal you of your sins, of your spiritual sickness, if you will only recognize and acknowledge that you are a sinner who needs Christ and put your trust in Him. He can heal you. The broken and contrite sinner, our humble Savior says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden over what? Over your sin? Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Those are the words of Jesus to the broken, contrite sinner who understands your sin before a holy and just God. And you understand your helplessness and your sense of unworthiness, your inability to save yourself by your works, by your religion, by your performance, by your merits. And you look to the merits of the person and the work of Jesus on the cross. You put your trust in him. See, for some people, they think that coming to Christ means that that now, if you come to Christ, you won't be free anymore. But really, in actuality, apart from Jesus, you need to recognize that you are a slave to your own sin. And that one day your master, sin, will reward you accordingly with something called physical death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's sobering, isn't it? That's what sin, the wages of sin is death. Not only in this life, but eternally speaking. Away from the presence of God. But oh, Christ is far better, isn't he? Far better. Christ is a humble and gentle master. His yoke is easy and his load is light. He is benevolent. He is good. Christ, as your Lord and Savior, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always do perfectly what is right for you and for his glory. He is so much better, such a better master. Come to him. Come to him. In childlike humility, broken over your sin, acknowledge your need for him. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from your sins. You can be reconciled to God today through Christ. It is this wonderful Christ then that, look at verse 16, took them, the children, in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Wow, this is God. This is God in human flesh taking his time to tenderly take these little ones into his precious arms and blessing them with the ultimate blessing, the blessing of God incarnate. What a picture of our humble Savior. What a picture of of power under control in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. You see, the the very humility that he's continually calling on his disciples to have was the very humility that Christ himself exemplified, minus sin. He displayed humility throughout his life. Though the eternal Son of God, though God himself, Christ displayed the ultimate humility and condescending to minister to sinful human beings like us all the way to the cross. Philippians 2.7, Christ emptied himself. That's the idea of the fact that he voluntarily laid aside the independent and full use of his divine attributes while a human. Christ emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate example of humility is our Lord Jesus. It's Christ, brothers and sisters. This is Christ. This is the, the Christ to whom we have entrusted our souls to. This is the Christ who is the one who lives now to intercede on our behalf. 
This is the Christ who, by virtue of his atoning death on the cross, loves us who are in Christ with an undying love now and forever. This is Christ who is the ultimate example of humility and our high priest. Can I ask you as we close this morning, do you love like Christ loves? Are you striving by the grace of God to love as Christ loves? Can I remind you that wherever you are deficient right now, Only as you understand Christ's love for you as displayed on the cross will you be able to love Christians, other brothers and sisters, and especially a lost world full of sinners who resemble you prior to coming to know Jesus. Were it not for his grace, we would be there. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, such were some of you, Christians. You were those who were out there doing those things. You were the sexually immoral. You were the fornicators. You were the thieves. You were the deceived. And he gives all kinds of categories of sins there, not exhaustive. But he says, such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is who we were. And the more that we return to the cross and are reminded of that, the more that we will have Grace, brothers and sisters, to be able to love the world around us. How is your love for Christ being manifested right now in the way that you love others? Can I ask you, are you humble? Are you walking in humility? See, for some of us, at one time at conversion, we received God's gift of salvation in Christ with with great humility with a great sense of our unworthiness, of the fact that we didn't deserve this gift of salvation. At the moment of conversion, we were quite humble and broken. But the more that the years have passed, the more that we've grown in knowledge, the more experiences that we have uh, had or gained in ministry, the more that we've grown only hardened and more proud based upon what we, quote-unquote, know and we have experienced and perhaps our age bracket. We too, we too have a reason to come and learn from these children, right? The lesson from the school of children that Jesus teaches us here. Let us walk in love. Let us walk in humility like our great Savior, beloved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the great sacrifice of your Son by which you have shown your love for sinners such as us. Father, I thank you for this great passage that teaches us in our Lord's school of children, as it were, the fact that we need to be those who love even the most marginalized in this world. And that's what Christ modeled, even loving children, spending time with them, setting aside the busyness of ministry to be able to minister to them. And he did that for all those who were often, from a human perspective, ignored during his humanity. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. Help us to understand his love for us so that we might be able to, out of that, be able to love one another and the world around us. I pray also that you would help us to cultivate humility, a childlike humility that is always, always has the attitude of, of a learner. Help us to be people who are teachable and humble. Help us as we look at the things that are happening in the world around us to, Lord, never elevate ourselves above people as if we are better Were it not for your grace, we would be there too, Lord. Help us to have compassion. Help us to have mercy. Help us to speak the truth in love into these issues that we're seeing in our country. 
and in so doing, display the gospel of Christ and make much of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.